Good morning. How are you all? Trust you're well this morning. Well, it certainly is the Christmas season now, isn't it? I know me, uh, my family and I, we have been looking forward to this time, and there's a lot of things that we anticipate as we look to this season, our traditions, decorating the tree, time with family, watching our favorite Christmas movies. But there is one sign of the season that my son and I look for the most. And it's a literal sign. And it usually appears somewhere around Thanksgiving and it hangs just above the door at Weigel's. Does anybody know what it is? Eggnog, holiday eggnog. When that sign appears, we're giving each other high fives. <laughs> there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who like eggnog and those who don't. Amen. My son and I love it. And as you can guess, our favorite kind is Weigel's eggnog, the nice thick kind that you have to wait to come out of the carton when you pour it. <laughs> it's the kind of eggnog that you eat with a knife and fork. And we love that eggnog. I was thinking about this week that in some ways, eggnog represents pretty well the tension of Christmas, believe it or not. Because as we approach the, the holiday season and Christmas, some people really like it, and some people don't. Some people look forward to Christmas with childlike joy. And for others, Christmas makes their stomach turn just a little bit. For some of you, you love Christmas. You, you don't have maybe one bad memory of Christmas. You look forward to the presents and the food and the family and all that comes with Christmas. You know who you are. You're the one that starts playing Christmas music right after Halloween. <laughs> and you have an artificial tree so that it can be up for more than a month. <laughs> but then for every person that may be in that category, I would guess there's probably another person in here for whom Christmas comes with an ache and a twinge. For some of you, at Christmas time, you experience the pointed pain of living in a fallen world. I read a car, an article the other day uh, about Scott Whalen, who was the former lead singer of the Stone Temple Pilots. Uh, and it was an article written by his ex-wife. And it was an article just filled with, with realism and anger, and she insisted that people didn't make this another rock and roll death. But there was one little line in that article that she wrote that stuck out to me. She said, I won't say he can rest now or that he's in a better place. He belongs with his children, barbecuing in the backyard and waiting for a Notre Dame game to come on. I read that and I thought, she's exactly right. She's exactly right. And some of you will feel that very same pain that she felt right there. 
And what is that pain she's talking about? It's the dissonance between the life that we know deep down that we were meant to live and yet the broken lives that we are now living. And at Christmas time, we often experience that dissonance the most. We catch in Christmas these glimpses of all that we were made for, the joy, but also the sorrow. And some of you will say with her, my son should be here right now with our family. Or maybe you'll say, my husband should be here to see his grandkids. Or I shouldn't have to go through another Christmas without my friend. Or I should have a job and abundance and joy. And you're right. And at Christmas, we often feel all that could be and yet also the pain of all that is not, right? So we we decorate and we dress up at Christmas. Why? Because we were meant for glory, right? Even the way we dress anticipates that we were meant to put on glory. And yet the tree withers and the dress fades. At Christmas, we we experience the joy of family coming together, that we were meant to be together in the joy of community and unity and peace. And yet, someone is always missing. And that's the pain of living in the fall. That's the pain of experiencing the dissonance between this person we were meant to be, right? Created in the image of God. Created for Eden. Eternity in our hearts. And yet to live in a reality broken by sin, Satan, and death. And at Christmas, we we often feel that disjunction the most. But this morning, to you who are looking forward to Christmas with joy, and to you who are experiencing the pain of searing loss, I believe with all my heart, God wants me to publish peace to you. Peace. to publish good news of happiness, to publish salvation, to tell you your God reigns over your every worry, over your every sorrow, over your wayward child, over your failing health, over your past sins that continue to haunt you, over your hopes, over your dreams, over the headlines, over your dark thoughts, over your depression, over your anxiety, peace. God says to you, peace. There is salvation. 
peace. There is good news. Peace. Your God reigns. There is peace. There will be peace. God has promised peace. God has won peace. He will bring you peace. You can know peace. Peace. God says to you today, peace. And all I want to do this morning is simply publish peace to you. I want to publish peace to you. And so we're going to start in the beginning. We're going to start in the Old Testament and see how God brings peace. So if you want, you can go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to reread what Jake and Allison read. In the Old Testament, in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis, right, which is the book of origins, right, telling us the genesis of the world the way it is. In the opening chapters of Genesis, we see when the world and humanity was first at peace. In the beginning, we're told that God created the heavens and the earth, created the galaxies and this physical planet, animals, plants, and he said it is good. And then he created humanity and made them, male and female, in his image to be like him. And he placed them in the Garden of Eden and they were to cultivate it, care for it. And they were to live in unity and bear children and be fruitful. They were at peace. And of course, the ultimate picture of peace was that they walked in the garden with God. They were at peace with God. But Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They did not keep his command. They sinned against the Lord and God exiled them from the garden. And with that, the peace on earth was shattered. And outside the garden, east of Eden, they found sin, they found pain, they found suffering, they found death, they found evil. Outside the garden, man and woman no longer were unified, but they fought one another. There was discord, disharmony. They found that work was now difficult. No longer did the land just produce fruit and food, but work was now toilsome and often vain. Outside the garden, they found murder, right? The first murder was between two brothers. Because apart from God, things fall apart. And so peace was shattered. And now we live in that fallout. And so again, I mentioned that at Christmas, sometimes we get both the hint of that remembrance of Eden, of what we were made for. We, we get a hint of that in family and good times and feasting and decorations and dressing up. We get a hint of that glory we knew and yet we still experience all that came with the fall. 
we feel that disconnect. And that's what's going on. You're, you're experiencing these echoes of what you were meant for. You're, you're tasting it. C.S. Lewis talks about anticipations of a land you've never seen, and yet you somehow know it. He said sometimes we call it nostalgia, but it's not nostalgia. He says it's actually memories of this, echoes of Eden. But now we live in the fallout. And yet, after the fall, after Genesis, actually in Genesis and there throughout the Old Testament, we get these little prescient bits and pieces of what's going to come, of a new hope, of a restored peace. And God says throughout the Old Testament, there will be peace. He promises in the Old Testament, peace. And there's these incredible images that we see of peace returning to the earth. In Isaiah 11 and 65, we get these pictures of peace that would just bring tears to your eyes. There's this promise that one day God will make a new heaven and a new earth and there will be new order. Things will be set right. And then in these prophecies, Isaiah pictures for us a time, he says, when no longer will babies die in infancy. He says, no longer will the young man die in his young age. Again, will we build homes and live in them? There'll be restoration. He says, again, there will be peace. And one of the most famous pictures that you will probably be familiar with of this future peace that's promised in Isaiah is the picture of the wolf lying down with the lamb. Or sometimes we talk about the lion lying down with the lamb. The wolf lying down with the lamb. So thorough will this peace be that God brings. So far-reaching so deep, so resounding will this peace be that even the animals are at peace and the wolf lies down with the lamb. The other famous picture is that of a child playing with a cobra. He says, in that day, the child will play with a cobra and fear no harm. I mean, imagine that. That's the peace he promises. Imagine a little toddler out in your yard, laughing and giggling and rolling about in the grass and you realize why he is doing that. He's playing with a cobra. I mean, that's inconceivable to us now. What do we do now when we see a snake? Kill it, right? We had a little bitty snake appear on our front porch a little while ago. Uh, we live in a neighborhood. We have woods behind our house. So we have all kinds of little wildlife that appear sometimes, skunks and uh, foxes and uh, every now and again a snake, which I have an awesome story about Jess fighting a snake. Uh, I won't tell it now, but anyways, she is a warrior princess. That's a story for another day. Um, but we have this little bitty snake about that big appear on our front porch and it was just sitting on the railing. And I posted a picture on Facebook and said, anybody, what, what kind of snake is this? And of course, the comments just went back and forth about what kind of snake it would be but without fail, every comment ended with, either way, kill it, <laughs> right? I mean, it doesn't matter. Like, the best snake is a dead snake, right? I mean, that, that's kind of how most people feel. And so it's probably fitting then that when God gives Isaiah an image of what this peace will look like, he goes right after one of the most fearful things, snakes, and he picks 
one of the most fearsome, the cobra, right, of all snakes. That's the one that kind of squares off with you. I mean, how many snakes actually like rear up and like look at you? That's what the cobra does. And he says, that will all be gone. There'll be peace. The toddler will tussle and play with that little cobra with no fear. That's how thorough the peace will be. So God has plans for peace. There was peace, but then we disobeyed and disorder and chaos reigned. But then God said, I will restore peace. I have a plan for peace. I have a plan for you for peace. And at the center of this plan was the Messiah. At the center of this plan for peace was the promise of a Messiah, the one, the coming king would bring this peace. Now, let's read Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, we we hear about this savior for the world. And listen how, listen to how Isaiah describes this savior. Isaiah 9, starting in verse two. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And then jump down to verse six. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. So we have this light shining. It's connected with the birth of a child. And here's how, they descri- here's how he describes the child. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Now those are incredible names and we don't have time to get into those. But you already get a hint that this child is unique. Mighty God is one of his names. But listen to this last name. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Of the increase of peace, there will be no end. The Messiah will bring peace. The Messiah will restore peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So in the Old Testament, it is clear that God promised peace. And he said the Messiah would be at the center of that plan. The Messiah would bring this peace. He would be the prince of peace. And now, as we turn the pages of our Bible to the New Testament, what we see is that Jesus is plainly the Messiah that was promised. And that Jesus secures this peace. So Jesus is the Messiah And in Jesus, God secured peace. In the New Testament, there are several passages where that's all connected, where Jesus is clearly the Messiah and clearly he is bringing peace. So as we go to the New Testament, we kind of just kind of fly down into the first Christmas, the first advent of Christ, the coming of the Messiah. And I'm gonna show you just a couple passages where we see this connection, this constant connection between Jesus and the bringing of 
peace, Jesus securing peace. So the first example is in Luke chapter one, verse 79. You don't have to flip there, but I'll read it for us here. But this is the priest Zechariah speaking. So Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist and he is now speaking over John the Baptist, talking about what his son will do in his ministry. And then towards the end of this pronouncement and declaration about John the Baptist, he makes this comment about Jesus. Zechariah says, Jesus is being born to, quote, give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. Does that sound familiar? Jesus is being born as a light. Feels like we just read a passage about that. Something about light shining. Isaiah 9, right? Isaiah 9 talks about this very thing. Zechariah connects that with Jesus. He is that light shining. And what comes with this shining of the light? The end of verse 79. To guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus comes to bring peace. And then what do the angels say when they appear in the night sky to the shepherds that first Christmas? What do the angels say? When an angel appears to the shepherds and the angel says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day, does that sound familiar? For unto you is born this day, we just talked about a child being born. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ. And Christ, of course, is the Greek translation of Messiah. So he's saying the Messiah is born today. That child is born. The Messiah. And this will be a sign for you, verse 12. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. So all these little nativity sets that we see this time of year, they're not just tokens of sentimentality, they were a part of the sign of the Messiah. The angel said the sign will be you will find a baby lying in a manger in a feeding trough. It's a pretty distinct sign. Not a lot of babies lying in feeding troughs. So he says, look for the baby lying in the manger. When you see that baby, you've got the Messiah. And whom did they find lying in the manger? They found Jesus. Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. And then, what happens next after the angel connects this manger with Jesus, the coming Messiah? Well, all of a sudden, a, a whole host of angels appear and they're singing and, and listen to what we read here. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. There it is again, the connection between the Messiah and the promise of peace. Jesus is the promised Messiah and he is the secure of peace. Jesus secures peace. And sure enough, as we track and trace 
the ministry of Jesus through the Gospels, we see just that. We see Jesus working and unpacking this promised peace. He works to restore peace. He begins to dismantle all that would war against peace. And so we see him going to those who are sick. We see him going to those who are ill, cancerous, or lame, or blind, or deaf, and he heals them. And he says, go in peace. He's dealing with death and its precursors. And then he turns to another who's caught in sin and says, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. He's restoring that brokenness. And then another time, we see him encountering evil. We see him encountering a man filled with demons, raging, angry, consumed with these demons. So strong were these demons in him that no one could fight him or oppose him. He just kind of lived out among the tombs. And it says that when Jesus got there, he took care of the demons so thoroughly that when everyone came back, they found this man who was once enraged with demons and demonic forces. They found him in his right mind, sitting, it says, calmly, perfectly serene, at the feet of Jesus. Jesus is restoring peace. And then even there's one moment when Jesus is out on a lake and a storm comes up. Nature is raging against him. The wind is howling, the waves are crashing, the disciples are despairing. And Jesus stands up and he says to the storm, peace, be still. And it says like that, the waters calmed down and they were perfectly still. They were glassy with peace. So the ministry of Jesus is working to undo all that would work against peace. He's working against sin and disease and death and Satan and even the broken physical universe. He's undoing all of that, bringing peace. And then all of this culminates in his work on the cross. What was Jesus doing on the cross? He was securing our peace. Remember, what was the start? What was the root cause of all this discord and chaos? What was at the beginning that set this whole mess into motion? It was sin, right? It was the disobedience of Adam and Eve and all of humanity after that. It was the sin of mankind. And where there is sin present, God and his blessing cannot be present. He is a holy God. And where God is not present and his blessing is not present, things fall apart and you get the world that you see. And so for Jesus to come in his earthly ministry and begin to undo some of these symptoms and show and and tell of this coming peace was important, but the most important thing was to dig up that original root, that original cause, to reconcile us back to God, to deal with that root sin. And we're told by Paul that that's exactly what Jesus was up to on the cross. He was securing our peace by dealing with our sin. Forever, once for all, dealing with our sin. That we might have restored fellowship with God and thereby have restored peace. Paul says in Romans 4, 
verse 24, righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. And then listen to this description of Jesus. Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So in dealing with that sin, Jesus taking on our trespasses, our sin, he was given up to the cross for our sin. And through that, we now have peace with God. Now what Paul was saying was not new. This is the very work of the Messiah. This is what the Messiah was supposed to do. If we were to flip back to Isaiah, again, when Isaiah talks about the Messiah, he says, the Messiah is gonna do this very thing. The Messiah is gonna deal with our sin once and for all so that we might have peace again. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah is talking about this Messiah again and he says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And in fact, people quoted that passage when he was healing people. He said, he's doing it. This is the one. Jesus is doing that thing. They said, he's, he's bearing our, our grief. He's taking our sorrows. He says, but we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But then listen to verse five of Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, right? This is what Paul is paraphrasing in Romans 4. He was handed over for our transgressions. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. So in Jesus, God secured peace. He won our peace with God. There is peace. Now at this point, you may be thinking, okay, that's, I'm seeing where you're going here. We had peace, we lost it through sin. Now God secures it again in Jesus so where is it? Where is it? Have you seen the headlines? Do you know what's going on in my household right now? Where is this peace? And the answer is, in the church. In the church, God provides peace. In the church, God provides peace peace. Let me read you another passage where now Paul is writing a letter to a group of believers in Ephesus and he again uses this language of restored peace to describe the work of Christ. And he locates the gift of this peace right inside the church. That's where this peace is working its way out. 
In Ephesians chapter two, starting in verse 13, Paul says this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You can see in this passage that there are a couple dimensions to this peace that God is now working out in the church. The first dimension is is the vertical dimension, this this vertical plane. He says, um, verse 17, he came, Jesus came and preached to you peace who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we have access to the Father. He says, through him, we have access to the Father. To the Father. So now there is peace with God. We can now enjoy peace with God. And that peace, that kind of peace, is available today, is available now, in and through the church, through the people of God. He says that peace is here. That's the peace of a clear conscience. That's the peace of a restored hope. That's the peace of knowing that Christ is coming back. That's the peace of knowing that God is not angry with you, but because of the work of Christ, he is pleased and all accounts are settled. That's the peace of knowing you can pray to your heavenly father. That's the peace of knowing your prayers will be answered for your good. That kind of peace is available now in Jesus. And a lot of the New Testament is uh, the apostles and New Testament leaders trying to help people work that out. Um, I heard somebody explain this, kind of like putting chocolate syrup in milk, right? You put chocolate syrup in milk, where does the chocolate syrup go? Straight to the bottom, right? So it's technically chocolate milk, but not quite. You gotta stir it up and it, it begins to take this shape. So a lot of the New Testament letters are helping believers stir up this new reality. You have peace right now. And we're learning to live in that. So you have, you know, Paul saying, hey, you're a child of the king. So stop acting like orphans. Hey, don't fear. You don't need to fear. You're more than a conqueror now. Don't worry about prayer. You have the Holy Spirit. He'll help you pray. God will hear you pray. He'll work all things for your good. He's helping people work out this peace that is now available today. So that's kind of the vertical Dimension, there is peace available now. We have access to the Father now. But then there's this horizontal dimension, this horizontal plane. And he says, the peace that brings us to God is also the peace in the church that brings us together. So this peace works both ways. In verse 14 again, he says, for he himself is our peace who made us both one and it's broken down the flesh, in the flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. And what he's talking about here is the divide between 
the nation of Israel, all the Jewish customs and laws, and the Gentiles. He's saying now, because of Christ, all those regulations, commands, those things that kept us apart, those things are done with, and now we're coming together as one body. So, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments, expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So he's reconciling us both in one spirit to God. So up and together. We have a little picture of this in our house uh, from time to time. Our our kiddos are uh, frequently, you know, tussling together and uh, there's some skirmishes and things like that. Um, But on occasion, we'll all sit down in the living room and I'll sit down on the couch and we'll watch a movie or something like that. And and as I sit down, you know, one one child will kind of notice, oh, there's dad. I'm going to go over there and snuggle. And so one child will make his way over and uh, sit on my side and kind of snuggle up. And then the next child will notice, oh, dad's taking snuggles. All right. Well, you know, I'm going to get in line. Uh, So I have another child come and hop on my lap. And then the third child would say, oh, look, I think I could squeeze in right on that left side, right on the edge of the couch. I think I could just squeeze right in there. And so before you know it, I've got one here, one here, and one here. And these children who were maybe just minutes ago squaring off against one another at odds with one another are now perfectly at peace, side by side, even touching oftentimes. Why? Because they're at peace with their dad, right? They're here with me. And as they came with me and are enjoying me, enjoying their dad, it's bringing them together. And Paul says, you know, God's doing the same thing. When he's working to make a new man, when he's working to bring people to him and create this new community, hey, guess what? He was drawn together, all of us. And this, this, this peace that now goes out horizontally is so strong. It's not just Jew and Gentile. It should be, should be everything, race, uh, geography, economics. I mean, every, there's not really a divide that, that could... Trump, what's going on here? What God's doing in the church? He's bringing together all of us in this new peace, in one body, one spirit. But the important thing to remember is this peace is also supposed to go out, right? So God's providing peace in the church and that he's, as he's forming the church, he's bringing people to him. He's bringing us together, but he's also providing peace to the world through the church, right? One theologian talks about churches. Think of churches as little embassies, of his new kingdom. So dotted throughout Knoxville are these embassies of peace. He's trying to establish his kingdom rule through the churches now. So this peace is not just for us. Everybody stay out. We have peace. We've come together. We have one spirit. It's supposed to keep going out in the proclamation of the gospel and the ministry of of action as we do justice, uh, love our neighbor. The peace keeps going out and he just keeps enfolding more and more of the world into this peace that he has secured in Christ. So there is real, genuine, lasting peace secured in Christ and available now in the church, for the church, through the church. But it's not perfect peace. And I know that you know that. It's not completed peace. It's peace that's spreading. 
It's peace that is true. It's not a fraud. It's real peace. But it's not finished. It's not perfect. And so we must look then to the second Christmas. So even as at Christmas time we look back to the first Christmas and we celebrate the coming of this Messiah and the announcement of peace, so also we should look ahead to the second Christmas when Jesus returns and God perfects peace. You see, in the return of Jesus, God perfects peace. He completes peace. And that's exactly what we see in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. The apostle John receives a vision of that last day when Christ will return and there will be perfect peace. And it, and it echoes Isaiah 11 and 65. Here's what we read in Revelation 21, verse one. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. What does John see in this last day, this vision of the final day? He sees restored peace. He sees this Edenic peace now restored and better because it is completed, free from sin, free from the threat of sin, free from Satan and the threat of Satan. And God again dwells with his people and there is peace. And listen today to that last word, that last point he makes. What does he say? It is done. He says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the A and the Z. I'm in the beginning and I'm already at the end. There is zero question there will be perfected peace. You don't need to doubt. There will be perfect peace. The story is already written. It is done. It is finished. So, peace to you today. At Christmas, we remember the coming of the Prince of Peace. Peace to you. See this peace. I want you to picture this peace. Picture this peace like a river. It was lost in the fall, and then at the coming of Christ, a little spring of 
peace began to bubble up. And then through the ministry of the Messiah, that little spring turned into a stream of living water. And then on the cross, that stream became a mighty river now flowing out. And now through the church, we are directing and redirecting that river of peace to this peace-parched land. And he says one day that peace will cover the world. It'll be like an ocean because the knowledge of God will cover the world and there will be peace everywhere. So get a hold of that today. Peace. It is sure. It is done. It is coming. And you can step into that river right now. So I know that last day is not here, but that river that's flowing out, it's, it's real and you can step into it right now. You can know peace today. It will not be the perfect peace yet, but it will be a growing, real, and genuine peace. You can step into that river of peace now. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus told his disciples when he was about to leave. He was talking with them in the Gospel of John, and he's about to head to the cross, and he's talking about his eventual ascension back to heaven. And he says this to them. He says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Right? How does the world give? The world gives and takes back. The world gives fraudulent gifts, fool's gold. So I don't give like that. I give real peace and it's true and it's lasting and it's yours. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you again. Right, he connects the peace with looking for his return. Hold on to that, he's coming back. And then he goes on in chapter 16 to say, I have said these things to you, right? I've told you all about that. I've told you about my second coming. I've told you all that's about to happen. That in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus knows that tension. He knows that right now you're in tribulation. There's pain, there's suffering. This world is difficult. And yet he says, you can have peace in him. In this world, tribulation. In him, peace. And one day, perfect peace. So how do you receive this peace? Well, you entrust yourself to the king, to the Messiah, to the prince of peace. And he says, anyone that calls on his name, he says, I'll hear you, I'll rescue you. That's what I do. So entrust yourself to him. Entrust your sin to him. Your hopes, your dreams, your whole life, your plans, give that to him. And the Prince of Peace will fight for you and give you peace. So let us do that now in prayer. Let us entrust ourselves to the Prince of Peace. Father God, thank you that we can know peace because of your son and that we can know peace now through your spirit and that we can anticipate peace because you are the beginning and the end and it is sure. And so we entrust ourselves to you, Lord. We ask in this holiday season that has so much good and yet 
painful moments as well, Lord. We just ask for your peace. Help us live out of this reality that you have secured for us. We give ourselves to you, Lord Jesus.